Revelation chapter 1, I realized as I came up to do the hymns, I looked at the bulletin, it's October 11th today, it's uh, two years, this is two years since I've been here, I can't believe the time has gone so fast actually, Um, but um, we praise the Lord for the blessings that he's given us in that time, we look forward to a lot more years here if it's the Lord's will for us. And so we'll just continue to faithfully serve him until he has a different plan. But for now, we're here, so you're stuck with me. So, all right, Revelation chapter 1, we're going to go back to verse 9. We started looking at the revelation or the revealing of the glorified Christ here as John receives in his vision. So Revelation chapter 1, we'll start at verse 9 if you'll follow along with me. Says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto a fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last." I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches." Let's take a minute and pray before we look at our message this morning. Father, again, we just come before you and before your word, and you have given us all that's in this Bible for our benefit, for our encouragement, for our instruction, for our correction, and even reproof in some manner. Lord, I pray that you would now use your word, help it to accomplish its purpose. As you've said, it will not return to you void either in convicting us and instructing us or in encouraging us. Lord, help us to see the lessons that you have for us today. And as we look into the the words of this passage, Lord, may we see Jesus Christ above all else. Lord, we know he is the preeminent one that you've exalted, that you have set up on high, our high priest, and now he intercedes for us. And so we thank you for his position that you've given him, for his relationship that we have with him as we have salvation in him. And Lord, I pray now that we would understand this passage. Use me to teach clearly. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and with power of word and mind, 
and body so that I might proclaim your truth that we might hear from you today. We thank you for what you're going to do now. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Last week, we began this looking at this passage, um, starting at verse 9, about the revelation or the revealing of the glorified Lord as John was shown by the Lord himself. And just to get a running start, um, we're not going to go back and, and go in detail through these verses, but John is writing this book, and he's getting this vision as he's imprisoned on the island of Patmos. He's there doing hard labor. Remember, he's about 90, 92, maybe a little bit older than that. And yet he's there on the island because of his testimony for the Lord Jesus and because of his preaching of the gospel. And the Roman government sentenced him to imprisonment on this island where he was literally just breaking rocks all day. Okay, So here's his situation, and he says it was the Lord's Day, the Sunday, and John was worshiping when the Holy Spirit gave him this vision. And he basically was taken in an out-of-body experience, was a trance-like state, where God communicated directly to his spirit without having to use physical senses. So John is receiving this directly in his spirit from the Lord. And as he's in this trance-like state, he hears this voice behind him. And the voice is like a loud trumpet, he says. And the voice in verse 11 says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches. So this is Jesus Christ speaking to John directly in his spirit. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to reveal something to you. And you need to write it down and send it to these seven churches. Now, we've already talked a little bit about these seven churches. And we're going to look at them more in depth beginning next week. But the churches are listed in verse 11. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They were the main communication centers of Asia Minor at this time. In fact, Ephesus itself, we're going to see next week, was kind of a center of all of that. It was the marketplace of the world, really, and it was a very, very important city. So this message probably went to Ephesus first, and from there it was circulated to these other churches. But Jesus is telling John he's going to give him this vision, and he wants him to write it down to record it. But it's not just for the seven churches. This message is for all of us. These churches represent all churches throughout all time. And so this message is for all of us to learn from, and that's why John says this. And as we get into the churches, you'll see this phrase repeated that goes like this, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. That means if you're listening, if you're ready to receive the Lord's instruction, no matter what church you go to, God will teach you something through this passage. So these are for all the church. It's for us as much as it was for them. So John hears this voice telling him to write these things down, and then John turns around to see who's speaking to him. And he recognizes Jesus Christ, but this is not the Jesus Christ he knew on earth. Now, the first thing he sees is the seven candlesticks. And we're told in verse 20 that the seven candlesticks represent the seven churches. And the picture is Jesus Christ standing amidst or among his church. Jesus Christ is with us in the middle of his church. Now, as we worship, that means something to us. Because it means that Jesus Christ, his presence, is here with us today. 
It's not just that we worship some far-off God who's in heaven. Jesus Christ literally is with us in spirit. And, and John sees this. He says, Jesus Christ was standing, one as the Son of Man was standing among the seven candlesticks. And then John gets a good look at Jesus, and he describes him here, because this is a totally different appearance of Christ than John has ever seen before. And in verse 13, he says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks there stood like one unto the Son of Man, and he was clothed with this garment down to his foot. That was a priestly garment, a white linen garment with a golden girdle. And that signified his priestly role that Christ intercedes for his church now in heaven. Now, on earth, Jesus fulfilled his, his role as a prophet. He came, he taught, he told us God's word, literally, and then he went back to heaven after he died. He was the sacrifice as the prophet. He goes to heaven now, and he's operating under the role of high priest. He's interceding now for us before God. And here these robes symbolize his priestly role. But it gives him this authority as well, as we saw last week. When Christ comes back the second time and he comes and destroys his enemies on the earth, he will set up his kingdom as king of the earth. And so Christ will fulfill all three roles, prophet, priest, and king, by the time we get through Revelation. Here he's represented as the priest. And John says he's clothed with his garment down to his feet. And he goes on, he says it's got the golden girdle about his chest, or across his chest, again, signifying authority. Remember last week I said when you wore a girdle or a belt around your waist, it signified that you were a servant or a worker. To have that girdle or that sash around your chest signified authority. And so this is the authority of Jesus Christ here. Verse 14 says his head and his hairs were like white like wool, as white as snow. And we saw how that represents Christ's purity. He is absolutely sinless. The Bible tells us that. Even as a man, he came and he lived among us, yet without sin. And that uh, qualified him to be that perfect sacrifice for mankind. And it is that purity that God calls his church to. He says many, several times in Scripture, Be ye holy as I am holy. And so we're called to be pure like Christ. But his purity here is seen in his hair, and it's also a representative of his wisdom. And we go on and we see the next phrase, uh, it says his eyes were like fire, a flame of fire. This means Jesus Christ sees everything. He knows everything about us. There's nothing that can escape his gaze. And so his wisdom, as signified by his white hair, his all-seeing eyes, just demonstrates and reaffirms his omniscience in our lives. His omniscience in the, 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 uh, the, the functions and the carrying-ons of the world. And the things that are happening around us. So he's in control of all of that. And it's in his understanding. He knows all of it. It goes on and it says, um, his feet, in verse 15, his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And as we looked at that last week, his feet are a symbol of judgment, this burning brass or this glowing brass. It's, a, it's a heat, which is a symbol of judgment, and Christ will trample out his enemies at the end time. But he also will purge his church in this judgment. And so Christ represents judgment here. Feet also represent conquest. 
And we're going to read, as he says in the next coming verses, that he has conquered death. He was dead, but now is alive, and he holds the keys of death and hell in his hand. So his feet represents conquest, and as I described last week, when a king would sit on his throne, he would be up on a raised platform above everybody else, and as they approached him, they would have to kneel down. So their entire body was below his feet. It symbolized authority and conquest. I also described how a king, when he went into battle after he conquered his enemies, would step on the neck of the, of the conquered king or the conquered people representing his conquest over them. And that's what Jesus' feet represents here, judgment and conquest. And then it goes on and it says his voice is as the sound of many waters. And here we have a description of his voice again. John initially um, gave us the description of his voice as a loud trumpet. It was this piercing, clear sound that John heard and said, John, record these things. I am the Alpha and Omega. I want you to record these things that you're going to see because this is what the church needs to hear. And here he describes his voice as the sound of many waters. It's like a waterfall. It'd be like if you were standing right next to Niagara Falls. The sound of that thundering water here. And it's the voice of authority, of power. And as, we saw, as we'll see in just a second, the power of God, the power of Christ, is in his words. And so he speaks with authority, the voice as of the sound of many waters. In verse 16, he says, he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, we see these seven stars here. They're described for us or defined for us in in verse 20 when um, Christ says, here's the mystery, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we looked at that phrase angels or that word angels, angelos in the Greek. It means messenger. And so these are messengers from the churches receiving this message from John. And yet Christ holds these seven messengers, or pastors, if you will, the leaders of those churches, in his hand. There's a a significance of safety and protection, but also of authority again. Christ not only protects those leaders in those churches, but he controls them. And the Bible tells us that. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us Christ is the head of all things. In Colossians chapter 1, he is the head of the church. He is preeminent in everything. And so Christ shows his control of his church here as he holds these seven stars or the seven messengers in his hand. And then in verse 16, the second part, it says, And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And this is where we ended last week. We were talking about the, the power and the might of God's words, of Jesus Christ's words. This sharp two-edged sword is described in Hebrews chapter 4. And it says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. There's nothing that can protect itself from the piercing of God's word. But here it represents his power as well, and his authority, and his conquest, and it's all wrapped up in his word. And we saw how in Genesis, the Bible tells us that God created the heaven and the earth, but how did he do it? He spoke, and everything came into being. When Jesus wants to exert his power, he uses his word. That is the only weapon he needs. And so his word is like a sharp, two-edged sword, and this is a long, broad sword that slices and cuts both ways, however you swing it. And that's the picture that John gets here. Christ, with his word of power coming out of his mouth, 
And then the phrase we didn't get to, the last description of him in verse um, 16, it says, his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Now this is talking about his glory. Christ in all his glory. Think about John looking at his face. And he actually can't hardly see the features of Jesus' face because his face is shining so bright. And he describes it as the sun shining in its full strength. Now, I hope none of you have ever done this, but if you, maybe you've taken a glance at the sun sometime. Don't sit and stare at it because you won't do it very long. Okay, But take a glance at the sun sometime and then just look away. And as we look away, we have these blue dots in our eyes, right? It's like it, the, the sun's brightness has just overwhelmed us, and now it's going to take a minute for us to refocus and get our, our vision back so we can see things clearly. And that the picture of God's glory is that it will re- literally outshine everything else. And when we understand and when we get a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ, everything else will become blurry to us because nothing else matters. Jesus Christ, in his glory, is all that matters. And when we get a a glimpse of his glory, as John did did here, we truly see him as he is now. Now, I mentioned last week, we have this tendency to think of Christ as the good shepherd. Nothing wrong with that. We have this tendency sometimes to think of Christ on the cross, suffering and bleeding as a man. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to remember that. But when we pray to him, when we go to him in worship, here's the picture of Jesus Christ that we need to have. Christ ruling, interceding for us with all authority, all power, all the glory of God. That's who we worship. That's who we represent on this earth. And so John gets this picture of Jesus Christ in all his glory. Remember, he had a peek at this, just a little bit of a glimpse back in Matthew chapter 17 at Jesus Christ's transfiguration. And in there it says, And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. So it just happened for just a little bit. John and, and Peter and James went with Jesus up on the mount, and Jesus was lifted up off the earth. His robe started to glow. His face started to shine. And the disciples got just a glimpse of what Jesus Christ was going to be, what he truly was in all of his glory. And here John sees him as he's never seen him before, revealed entirely in his glory. And so he says his face shone as if I was looking directly at the sun in all of its strength. That's the glory of God. It outshines everything else. Now, there's the picture of Jesus Christ. That John gets. That's the picture of Jesus Christ that we need to have when we worship him, when we go to him in prayer. If we go to Jesus in prayer and all we can think of is, well, Jesus is a good shepherd. There's nothing wrong with that because Jesus will take care of us. He will defend us. But where's the power? Where's the authority in that? Here, the power and authority is apparent. And when we pray thinking that Jesus is just a man... That's, I think, many times why we pray without faith. Because we don't recognize who we're praying to. We don't recognize who we're worshiping. We need to recognize this Jesus. Because this is Jesus as he truly is. And here is where we find the power for our life as Christians. 
Now, as we see this Jesus, and as John saw this Jesus, I want you to notice his response in worship. And this is truly the response of worship. Verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. There is the true response of worship. John literally lost all physical strength and fell down on his face as a dead man, he says. He fell on his face as if dead. This was an involuntary response. It was not something that he chose to do. He could not help it because he had just seen Jesus, the glorified Lord. You see this pattern many times in Scripture. If you go back in Daniel, Daniel has two visions of the Lord, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 10. We're going to study them in Bible study. But in Daniel chapter 8, he has a vision of Christ, and his response comes in verse 17 and 18. He says, so he came near, talking about Christ. He came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. And he said unto me, understand, O son of man, for at the end of time shall be the vision. He had another vision of Christ in Daniel chapter 10. And in verses 5 through 9, here's the description of it. Daniel says, Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face as the appearance of lightning, his eyes as lamps of fire, his arms and feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, you'd think if you read Daniel and then went over to Revelation that John basically is making this up and basically all he did was copy Daniel's description of Christ. They both had the same vision. They both described Christ exactly the same way. And verse 7 says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so they fled to hide themselves. Therefore, I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength left in me. He fell down. That's the response of true worship. I cannot stand before a holy, glorified Lord. Isaiah has a vision of God on his throne with the angels worshiping, proclaiming God's holiness, holy, holy, holy. John has that same vision we'll see in the future chapters in chapter 6 of Revelation. The angels around the throne of God proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Lord God of hosts. And when Isaiah had that vision, his response is, Woe is me, I am undone or ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. He basically said, I'm a dead man, because I've seen God face to face. Ezekiel had several visions of the Lord's glory, and each time he fell on his face. In fact, you remember the story of Samson. If I was going to give you the trivia, what was Samson's father's name? Probably not many would know, but his name is Manoah. And Manoah receives a vision from God through an angel about Samson's birth and about Samson being dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. And after the vision, Manoah responds, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. Over and over and over in Scripture, you see the same response. When people are face to face with the Lord, I'm a dead man. I cannot stand before him. Job 
Same thing. Remember, Job questioned God. And at the end of Job, the last several chapters, God questions Job. And at the end of the questions, Job's response finally is, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye hath seen thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. In Acts chapter 26, Paul's telling of his conversion to King Agrippa. And he says that when a great light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shone down on him, that they all fell on their faces to the ground, he and all the people that were with him. So what we see in John's response here is what I would call the true response of worship, the true posture of absolute submission before the absolute authority of Jesus Christ. Face down at the feet of the Almighty God. Now we get a little bit of that picture, but we need to understand how that applies to us in Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn back there very quickly, a familiar passage, Philippians chapter 2. Verses 9 through 11, Paul is talking to the Philippians here about Jesus Christ. In the first part of this chapter, he talks about Christ's submission and how he became a servant, and then his death in verse 8. But in verse 9, it's basically Paul saying, because Christ submitted himself to the Father's will, verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Christ is the epitome. He's higher than everything else. Verse 10, he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, does he say when we see Christ that every knee shall bow? It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We talked in Sunday school a little bit this morning about the name of God. God was giving Israel the Ten Commandments. And he says in those commandments, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You shall not use it frivolously. You shall shall not use it without purpose, without focus, without actually um, appreciating the authority and the glory of God. And I wonder how often we have this reverent fear for the name of Jesus Christ. I think too many Christians throw God's name and the name of Christ around very flippantly. You know, you talk to people and people will joke, oh, you know, well, God wanted me to do that. Did he really? Do you invoke God's name in something that you just chose yourself? You know, we sing the hymns, the songs, uh, you know, even the simple songs that the kids know, Jesus loves me, this I know. We sing that, we think, oh, that's a great verse. Yeah, it's a great hymn, it's great truth, but do we really believe it? Or are we just saying it because it's a cute thing and it's appropriate for church? Do we sing the hymns in the hymn book about the Lord, about praising him, and then we walk out of here, we forget completely about the glory and the nature of God and his holiness, and then live our lives any way we please? Paul says in Philippians 2 that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We must submit to him, 
not just in worship as we come into church and not just in prayer as we go to him with our petitions, but in our life. Our whole life is an act of worship. And literally, we have to live our life on our face before the Lord's authority, recognizing his authority and his glory. So when John says, I fell as a dead man before him, he understood this. This is the attitude of true worship. Every single knee will bow before Jesus Christ, and they will recognize his holiness and his authority. The question is whether we're going to do it now on this earth in this life, or whether we're going to do it as we are judged afterwards. Because we will acknowledge him as the authority. The question is when. If we don't do it by choice in this life, then we're going to do it by judgment in the life hereafter. And by the time we get to the life hereafter, it's too late to change our mind. And so we must worship before God in absolute submission because he truly is either our high priest, the exalted high priest before us today, or he will be our high judge tomorrow. And when we get that truth and when we get that understanding of Jesus Christ as Lord, that changes our worship. That changes our living. But this is the true response of worship. This is what it means to worship with reverence and godly fear, as Hebrews 12 tells us. You're supposed to serve him in reverence and godly fear. The word serve is the same word as the word for worship. Let me ask you this. Why do we bow, your, bow our heads when we pray? Why do we do that? That is a form of worship. It is a symbol of us literally saying, Lord, I bow before you. I, I take the knee. I bow my head to your authority. That's why we bow our heads. It's not just something that we've been taught to do, that we should do, and if that's fine if you do it. Now you know, if you didn't know before, why you should bow your head before when you pray. Now I'm not saying, you know, you're in your car and you're praying for the Lord's help, you've got to bow your head and close your eyes. Okay? It's not the outward That matters so much. It's the inward. It's that attitude before God. And I think many times we go before God, both in worship and in prayer, and we're just like, hey, God, you know, I'm I'm having a bad day. You've got to fix it for me. That's not how we would talk to a king. That's not the attitude that we would bring before a king, I hope. He is our authority. He has all the power of the universe wrapped up in his word. And we treat him like he's some guy we just met on the corner sometimes. See, we have this picture of worship here that should be the picture of worship for our life, not just in our prayer and in our worship of God and church. This kneeling is representative of the posture of submission. That's why so often in history you see people write about, or you see examples of people kneeling as they pray. My family sings together every once in a while. We used to sing all, to, all the time. One of our favorite songs is a song called Bow the Knee. The song is about prayer, but it's about really submitting to the Lord as king. And here we see this is the proper response in worship. This is the attitude of worship. 
And so how John saw Jesus here that made him fall on his face to the ground as a dead man is the reality of the glorified Christ that we say that we worship today. The question is, do we keep that in our mind, in our spirit, as we worship and as we pray? See, you can't worship this Jesus frivolously and glibly. You can't say, I'm going to worship this Jesus and then do whatever pleases you instead of him. You can't come and say you're going to worship this Jesus in pride and arrogance or even in self-esteem. Because it's not about us. In order to get the proper attitude of worship, we must realize who God is and then that we are nothing in his sight. We must worship him in reverence and godly fear, bowing ourselves before him because we're not worthy to be in his presence. You talk about the fear of the Lord, here it is. Fearing reverently the authority, the power that he represents. And remember, all it takes is one word, and he either can sustain us for eternity or condemn us to hell for eternity. That's the power of Jesus Christ. So John drops in fear here. This is a proper attitude of worship. But look at what Jesus responds to him. And here's Jesus, the Lord's response to true worship. I should go back to Revelation 1. In verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and Jesus, he, laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. See, as we come to the Lord in the proper fear of him, then God's response to us is fear not. Fear not. That's what the Lord gives us as we truly worship him. That's his message to us as his people. We have nothing to fear. Now, we bow before him in godly fear because of his power and authority, and he has all the right in the world and in the universe to send us immediately to condemnation in hell forever. And yet, if we truly submit ourselves to him, his response is, fear not. We don't have to fear that judgment and that condemnation. And he's assuring John, and not just assuring him, but he says, and he put his hand upon me, he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. Through the touch of Jesus Christ, he restored John's strength. And basically what he's going to say is, fear not, John, this is me, Jesus Christ, I'm the first and the last, I'm the one who you saw die, but I'm alive, and I will be alive forevermore, And because you've submitted your life to me to serve me, you have nothing to fear. I'm going to take care of you, both now and forever. See, that's the comfort. That's the guarantee that Christ gives us, his response to our worship, if we worship him truly. 
Worship is not about us coming and getting something out of worship. Okay? What we get out of worship is a fringe benefit. We get fellowship. We get the benefits of fellowship. We get the benefits of other people exercising their spiritual gifts to lift us up, encourage us, strengthen us, challenge us. There's all those benefits, but those are all secondary. The reason we come to worship is to bow before the Lord, to acknowledge his authority. And in response to our submission to him, he says, fear not. He gives us that assurance of his presence. He gives us that strength that we need to carry on every day. And as he tells John here, he says, get up. Look at verse 19. He says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. He acknowledges the worship that John gives him, but he says, stand up. And do what I ask. Record this so that other people can get this message. Through true worship and humility, John received strength and comfort and encouragement. And Christ touched him, but not in judgment. He touched him in assurance, in comfort. And in Jesus' words, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus repeats this phrase here that was given to us at the beginning of this chapter. He says, I am the first and the last. It means I was and I will be. There's nobody that's going to exceed me. There's nobody that lived before me or will live after me. I am everything. Okay? So this is the eternal God speaking to him. And he says, I'm he that liveth, was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Again, John saw him die. John saw him after he was alive out of the grave john saw him go into heaven and now jesus is just assuring him he's saying i'm that person i'm the one who lived with you on earth who died who was in that grave who rose again who sat with you by the seaside who taught you who you saw rise up into heaven i'm that jesus and i'm alive forevermore i'm not ever going to die again but it's not just that he's alive. Look at the last phrase of verse 17. He says, I, I, I have the keys of de- hell and death. Now, that's an interesting phrase. I have the keys of hell and death. When you think about somebody who has keys to a door, you think ownership, you think control, they're the caretakers. Okay? And Jesus is saying, I have the keys to the door of death and hell. I control who will die, when they die, how they die, and where they go when they die. That's all in Christ's hand. Now, as human beings, mankind as a whole wants to try to determine his own fate. And many false religions will say, well, if you do enough good things, if you live a good life, if you help people, that earns you a place in heaven. And it's all dependent upon us. And Jesus contradicts that right here. He says, no, that's not true. I control hell and death. I control where people end up. In Revelation chapter 20, 
this phrase is repeated. It's talking about the judgment. In verse 13, he says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. This is the last judgment. This is when Christ is going to judge and stand as judge before every person that ever lived, and those who have not trusted him will be sent to an eternity in the lake of fire. Because Jesus Christ controls death and hell. The word hell here is actually the word Hades. It's brought over from the Hebrew. Hades was the place the people went when they died, whether you were a believer or whether or not. Christ used the illustration of the rich man and Lazarus. He told this story. The rich man was in Abraham's bosom. The Laz- in La- and, uh, I'm sorry, Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. The rich man was in Hades, in hell. And he looked up and he saw Abraham. And then he petitioned, you know, for one drop of water. And then he said, well, just please send somebody to my brother from the dead so my brothers will believe. If somebody comes back from the dead, he'll, they'll believe. And the response is, no, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. And Christ proved that, by the way, because he did come back from the dead, and they still didn't believe. So this Hades is the place of death. Christ, when he was hanging on the cross, and the thief on his side said, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Christ said, what? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. That was that word for Abraham's bosom, that place of comfort when those people died. And here Jesus is saying, I control all of that. I control where people go when they die, how they die, when they die. Everything is in my hand. Now, that's comforting for those of us who are trusting him because our destiny then is not determined by us. Our destiny is determined by the Lord. And if we keep reading all through Scripture and even the message of Revelation, it's those people who will submit to him as Lord in this life who he will usher into an eternity of blessing. But it's those people who reject his authority in this life. Those will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. It's not really up to us to make that choice in a way. We don't choose to go to heaven or choose to go to hell. The only choice we have is to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. It's a giving up. And I've always said this. Salvation is not necessarily something we do. The Bible tells us that. In Ephesians, it's not by works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is more a giving up. It's a submission to the Lord. Okay, God, I can't do it. I just realized, according to your truth, I am absolutely sinful. I'm on my way to hell. There's nothing I can do about it. And so I give up. I give myself to you. I submit myself to your authority, to your truth. You have to do it in me. That's what salvation is. And that's what worship is. And when we do that, then Christ says, fear not, you're going to receive the blessing because I hold the keys of death and hell in my hand and I determine who will be brought into the kingdom. 
If we understand that our life and our destiny are completely in his hands, then we can't help but worship him in a spirit of humility. We can't help it. John realized he had just seen Christ in all his glory. He didn't deserve to live. And that John was a dead man, both physically and spiritually. Remember Jesus told his disciples on earth, except a corn of wheat fall into ground and what? Die. It cannot bring forth life. And John has recognized, I have to die. Now this is not the point of his salvation, I don't believe. I think it's just an extension of what he already believed and now he's seeing Jesus in all his glory. And so it becomes the full measure to him. But this is the attitude toward God and about ourselves that we have to assume in order to have the blessings that we read at the beginning of this book in chapter 1. If we do not submit to the authority of Christ in everything, then we have not submitted to him at all. We can say that we want to add God to our lives or we want salvation for fire insurance and then we choose to live our lives the way we want to. But if we don't submit to him in worship with our life, then we don't get the blessings. For those who truly worship him in their lives, Jesus doesn't respond in judgment. He responds in love. That's what 1 John chapter 4 is all about. 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the, ju- in the day of judgment. How can we have boldness going into judgment? Because Christ has already promised us that we're going to get the blessing if we submit to him. Christ has already promised that those who believe will receive eternal life. We have boldness going into judgment. We have nothing to fear, as he told John. Because we've submitted to him. He goes on in First John chapter 4. He says, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. And that's exactly what he's telling John here. John, thank you for fearing me. Thank you for respecting me. But you have nothing to fear because I have brought you past judgment into blessing. Because I hold those keys. And I control who gets what. He goes on, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. See that phrase, for a long time I struggled with the real meaning of that phrase, perfect love casts out fear. What does that mean? And I can't say I've got it perfect, but putting it in the context of, of Revelation chapter 1 and what he tells John, I think what that's saying to us is when we realize the perfect love of God demonstrated toward us and what we can receive because of his promised blessings to those who submit to him and love him in return, we have no, no more fear. We have nothing to fear in this life. The psalmist says, I will not fear. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. I have no fear because I know God loves me. 
That is the substance of Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Why? Because I know God loves me. And as I submit to him in love, God will only do what's good for me. I know that. That's what it says. And so I have nothing to fear. And even as we look forward to the end of our lives, dying is nothing more for a Christian than being ushered into the full substance of eternal life and all of those blessings and promises that God has given us as believers. If, if the, our best life is now, we're of all men most miserable, Paul says. Because this is nothing compared to what God has prepared for us when we get to heaven. And Christ says, this is suffering. You go through suffering for a little while, and then you'll have blessing for eternity. This is all worth it, Paul says. It's a light affliction. But this is what true worship in response to seeing the glorified Christ is all about. Christ's response to our true worship, our true submission to him is fear not. I love you. I've got your future under control. It's all in my hand. And believe me, there is nobody else I would want controlling my future. Because he will always do what's best. And so here we see a picture not only of our worship or what our worship should be, our response and worship to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as a glorified high priest, but then Christ's response to us if we truly worship him with our lives and submit to his authority. And in that true worship, with that response, knowing God loves us, knowing he will do what's good for us, knowing he has guaranteed us an eternity in heaven with blessing, then what do we do on this earth for the rest of our lives? We serve and worship him in godly reverence and fear. We bow before him, going before his throne with boldness. It doesn't say walk up in arrogance. It says bow before him, but we have boldness because we know he's not going to reject us if we come to him on his terms. And we have boldness in proclaiming the truth Why? Because if even people don't want to hear what we have to say, if it offends the culture and they persecute us, what's the worst that could happen to us as Christians? We might die. And that's the best thing that could happen to us as Christians because all the fear, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sin is gone then, and we're in the presence of the Lord for eternity. That's the message of this book. That's why Christ told John to record this. It's a message and a book of encouragement to those who trust in Christ and submit to them with their lives. Or it's a book of judgment to those who refuse to bow the knee to the Almighty Lord. And, John, and Jesus told John, write these things down. Write down the things that, you, that have already happened, that you have seen. Write the things that are now, and write the things which are to come. Revelation actually is the only book that gives its own outline right here in the first chapter. We're going to read 
The things which thou hast seen. Guess what? John is seeing. John saw Christ on earth. John saw his ministry. The things which are. The next two chapters are written to seven churches that existed at this time. And Jesus Christ is sending these letters to those churches at this time. These things that are. And then once you get to chapter 6 and 7, Revelation switches into future mode, and John writes the things which shall come to be. Future. But why? So we can have confidence. We can go boldly before the throne of grace. That we have no fear. Because we know that our life is in the control of Jesus Christ. The glorified Jesus Christ with all power with all authority, who can give us whatever we need, who can comfort us through all affliction, who can give us the strength to persevere in this life, and who has our destiny in his hands. There's the message of Revelation. Now, as we go through the rest of the book, we're just filling in the details. But here's the message for us. We can love God because he first loved us. And Christ, the glorified Christ, our high priest interceding for us, is giving us that promise. You have strength on this earth through me. You can have boldness before God to request the things that you need. And I will answer them. You have nothing to fear because I hold it all in my hand. And that's the Jesus we need to worship. That's the Jesus we need to pray to. And that's the Jesus we need to keep in our mind and in our vision as we live for him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are a risen Lord, that you will live forever. And it's in that life that you have that we have the promise of eternal life. Lord, you've told us that we have nothing to fear because you control our lives. You have us in your hand. And so help us not to fear. Help us not to live expecting judgment if we submit to you, but help us to understand what it means to bow before you in worship with our lives, not just in our actions, but in our spirit. Help us to always see you as the exalted risen Lord our high priest standing before the throne of God so that we might boldly come and present our requests, knowing that you will answer, having faith that you hear us, and knowing that you will do only what is good for us. Father, help us to be steadfast in the service of you, in the worship of you, in spreading that truth and that hope and the promise of life to others who need to hear it. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 489. 489, glory to his name.